0: Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig and today we are joined once again by our senior economist Matt Burgess. Hi Matt. Hi. We want to talk about the emissions trading scheme, climate policy and this time agriculture because that is one of the aspects we haven't really covered much in our previous podcasts and you argue that the way the Commission thinks about agriculture is fundamentally wrong.
1: What's wrong with it? So the Commission in its final report, uh, and indeed in its draft, comes to a view that agriculture emissions and actually ultimately herd size and uh, so on needs to come down in New Zealand. The problem with that view is that New Zealand agriculture is well known as being the most carbon efficient anywhere in the world. We can produce a tonne of, a kilo of milk solids um, with less emissions than anybody else in the world. Now arguably, if the world's goal is to lower emissions, it would be better for the globe, for global emissions, if more uh, demand for protein was being met uh, by production from New Zealand, where are the most carbon efficient in the world. And yet the Commission has recommended that our agriculture sector get smaller. My concern is that the Commission's recommendation is the product of its failure to conduct a proper analysis for any of its recommendations, including those for agriculture. And secondly, the government's unwillingness or or whole approach which treats New Zealand in isolation, rather than recognises New Zealand as part of a global effort to reduce emissions. The result of this siloed uh, thinking and a lack of analysis may well be uh, to put the wrong sign on the direction of travel that we need to be going um, in different sectors. And I think the top candidate for um, where the Commission and the government are going wrong may be agriculture.
0: New Zealand is quite unusual in some ways because agriculture is such a large proportion of the economy and also of our emissions. I think about 50% of New Zealand's emissions originate from agriculture. So does that put New Zealand at a competitive disadvantage vis-à-vis other countries? It could.
1: Uh, if we uh, bring agriculture into the ETS uh, before other countries, that has the potential to disadvantage our farmers. But let me, let me just put forward how I think... This could play out. Here's a systems approach to discovering um, the right amount of agriculture that should be occurring in New Zealand versus the rest of the world. And it's a two-step process. One is you bring agriculture into the emissions trading scheme, and the second part is you connect the emissions trading scheme to other schemes elsewhere in the world. Now, once you've done that, you, in principle, um, lots of machinery to put in place. But in principle, what you're doing is opening up the ability to discover which country should be doing what as part of the global effort to reduce emissions. Now, I think that. The plausible, if not the likely outcome from this is that New Zealand farmers will win and here's how it will play out. Farmers will be in the ETS, they will be paying uh, a carbon price but they'll also have the ability to import uh, emissions units, genuine emissions units, that's always key. Emissions units from other countries, they'll import low cost but genuine emissions units uh, and in exchange they'll be able to export more uh, protein. Uh, That would mean several things. One is uh, lower global emissions for a given amount of production of protein, no increase in New Zealand's uh, carbon footprint because we offset that with imports of genuine units, that's always key, and of course more exports and a bigger agriculture sector and that's, um, that's a win-win. Now the reason we're not looking at that, the reason the Commission uh, is insisting that agriculture gets smaller I think um, is the product of its failure to um, do the analysis uh, that it should have done. And, you know, you think about the consequences here, we're seriously considering going potentially in the wrong direction on an entire sector, one of our most important sectors for exports, um, and for, you know, a big sector for GDP, because somebody didn't do a spreadsheet, for goodness sake.
0: Would that require a global agreement on carbon trade?
1: It does not. It requires a series of bilateral agreements that gives us access to um, emissions units from other countries. It also requires an accounting and auditing system, checks and balances to make sure that um, we don't get a repeat of the Ukrainian credit scandal that we had over the last um, five or ten years. Those are the pieces that have to be in place. It's not as if all 190 countries have to be on board before
0: we can do anything in this place, mm-hmm. in this space. The argument you've just made about New Zealand agriculture being extremely carbon efficient, you could make the same argument about New Zealand aluminium being extremely carbon efficient. And um, rather than closing down Tui Point, might actually want to expand it if it's um, as some people claim the most um, carbon efficient aluminium in the world.
1: The point that's exactly right. The point here is we need a process that's able to discover which sectors need to get smaller and which ones need to get bigger on a global re- scale. On a global scale, mm-hmm. recognizing everything else that's going on in the world, in order to meet this emissions challenge. At the moment, New Zealand is doing its own thing in isolation, and we're almost certainly going in the wrong direction in at least some of those uh, some of the places. We're going to talking about downsizing some sectors uh, that should, in fact be upsizing and, and you know just the extraordinary costs um, that are associated with that.
0: So for global emissions, it might actually be exactly the wrong policy choice if we decided to scale oh. down. Or carbon-efficient agriculture if we decided to scale down our carbon-efficient aluminium production. So for global emissions, it might be just the wrong choice if we did that.
1: Yes, uh, that's right. I mean, the extraordinary thing when you look at the the Climate Change Commission's final report, um, they talk about submissions, uh, they recognise that New Zealand is a carbon-efficient producer of protein, uh, but never quite make the leap to say you know, maybe the sector needs to get bigger. The starting assumption throughout this whole process seems to have been that agriculture has to get smaller um, and the Commission has been unwilling to, uh, at least in its report, to ever challenge that starting assumption uh, with extraordinary consequences.
0: That leads me to a question that I've been pondering for a while. and The question is really, is it correct that we are constantly talking about the carbon emissions from the production of things like aluminium or milk powder? Wouldn't it be fairer if we rather talked about the consumption of products that embody carbon? So what I'm thinking is, um, currently we have a large agricultural sector. We produce aluminium, and New Zealand is seen as the emitter of carbon emissions. Rather than asking, well, actually, shouldn't be consume, shouldn't it be the consumers of these goods that actually get credited for the carbon emissions that they cause? So, say a, a liter of milk consumed in China is emitting a certain amount of carbon dioxide and um, why should it be on New Zealand's account that we actually measure these emissions?
1: It's a pretty hard question, Uh, it's a standards question and you can see, in principle you get to the same answer either way in terms of, um, in the long term. um,
0: As long as everything is
1: priced. As long as everything's priced and so the question is when everything is not priced um, what's the system that dominates? I mean it cuts both ways right, when we import an EV from Germany um, we're not paying for the emissions, uh, the substantial emissions that were part of making the battery in that EV that's embedded in the battery Um, the charge, if there is a charge at all um, is levied in the country where it's made but not where it's consumed. So um, it's a hard question, um, we're on a, you know, you can think of a standards question and um, coordinating equilibrium, and there's a question of whether the cost of transitioning from production to consumption-based uh, standard is worth the trouble, um, or whether there are, there are shorter uh, and more easy paths um, to a better outcome, but it's, it's yes, dairy farmers may well uh, win from a shift to consumption-based accounting, um, but you can also see where other sectors are going to lose.
0: And in the meantime, and absent a global system for that, you probably need to do a lot of accounting at the border.
1: Yeah, and boy, uh, things get pretty complicated there too because then you get into the whole um, uh, non-monetary tariff barriers and protectionism and all that sort of thing. It's a pretty knotty problem. But you can see the long-term uh, the long term strategy here is, is that there is a price uh, on emissions um, in some form from every country. And then you have trade in units between countries so that y- you get convergence. Uh, you get something like a global carbon price emerging in the coming decades. That's the long-term goal. Um, and once you've got to that world, then you can stop worrying about things like leakage. Um, and production, you know, you've got a system that allows production um, to be decided according to merit as opposed to according to who's pricing carbon or who isn't. So we're we're currently in that um, uh, arbitrage world of leakage. Um, We want to get to uh, a uniform price world, and the way to do that is um, to stop operating in, in isolation, which is what we're currently doing.
0: It is pretty unlikely that we will have all countries agree to such a scheme, I think economists like um, William Nordhaus and Hans-Wehner Sinn have talked about a carbon club where just a few probably advanced economies would get together and basically declare themselves a free trade area for the um, purposes of carbon trading. Do you think that is a way to deal with that problem?
1: Yeah. That that is a way, I think um, that's a very logical way. I think you've also got to keep some perspective here. Carbon isn't that expensive, right? Um, if agriculture were to come into the ETS tomorrow, it would add about 40 cents per kilo of milk solid. So um, that's substantial, but nobody's shooting the cows over that, I would have thought. So, you know, we've got to keep perspective here that this, um, as far as uh, you know, um, cost of trade, tariffs and that sort of thing. Carbon probably isn't um, a huge uh, expense that we um, sort of have to fundamentally change the way we do things.
0: What's probably just become clear in the little discussion we just had is how complicated it is to deal with these issues on a global scale. And when you then look at the Climate Change Commission's recommendations, which are very kind of clear cut and straightforward, all they do is talk about herd sizes here and our emissions, they basically take a very easy way out of that.
1: They pay lip service. 90% of what the Climate Change Commission is doing is paying lip service. There's really not a lot of work being done by the um, the limited analysis that they have done. I mean, no disrespect to the modelers, but ultimately they're operating at a macro level. The Commission just hasn't been willing to point its analytical capability at any of its individual recommendations, and it just hasn't thought seriously about the consequences of doing things in isolations. Now, the only thing I would say in the Climate Change Commission's defence is that The ledge that establishes them pretty much rules out any policy, um, any real connection with the outside world. But nevertheless, there's nothing in the Act that stops the Commission pointing out to the government and its advice um, the rather serious consequences of doing all of this work and all of its thinking in isolation uh, without thinking about how different policy might look. Um, if we were uh, thinking about our connection in relation to the rest of the world. And ultimately, that's where we're going to end up. And that thinking should start now. Why on earth would we um, take the risk of downsizing sectors like agriculture and possibly quite a few other parts of New Zealand um, for lack of just thinking a bit more broadly and taking analysis much more seriously than what the government and the Commission is doing?
0: And since you just mentioned the model loss, we are still waiting for the model. We are still waiting for the full model from the draft
1: report in January, let alone the final report. So I keep having to talk about results from the draft report because the final report, the numbers behind the final report haven't come out. But the final report, 771 pages of it, is strikingly short. Uh, of there's, there's hardly any real data in it. It's amazing how little, uh, how few numbers are actually in in the. 770 pages they've published so well, I, be- I
0: believe it was in March or April that Rod Carr <coughs> mentioned on a podcast that the model was not in a state in which it could be released and I think at the time he promised that July might be the June time or July. June or July well it's the end of June now so we'll soon get into July later this week so we might expect the release of the model any time now right?
1: Any time now and you know, the thing, when the, when those numbers come out, the very first thing I'll be looking for is what the full set of carbon prices are. The Commission is very reluctant in its final report to talk about, talks about a small set of carbon prices. If there's still carbon prices of $800, then we're going to be talking about consequences
0: for household because they're massive. Well, we are waiting for that with bated breath for now. I think that's all we can talk about. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. And thank you all for listening.